are now listening to Digital Doorways, where our audience learns from our expert guests as we explore their experiences with branding, transformation, and change. Unlock the digital doorways and embark on a journey of knowledge and growth. Now here is our host, Blue Text founder, Jason Siegel. Welcome to another exciting episode of Digital Doorways, where we explore the ever-evolving landscape of technology, marketing, and innovation. I'm your host, Jason Siegel, founder of Bluetext, and in this episode, we have a true marketing powerhouse, Jake Hines, who has been at the helm as CMO of major brands like Verizon Business, XO, Castle, and now spearheads the marketing efforts at the cutting-edge cybersecurity firm, Zero Fox. Jake's journey in the marketing world has been nothing short of extraordinary. He's no stranger to change, having navigated the challenges of M&A consolidation in the telecom and cybersecurity sectors. Jake has had the unique experience of working with billionaire investors like Carl Icahn and Mark Ein, managing their prized telecom and security assets. From transforming customer portfolios of over 25,000 businesses to mastering branding and marketing in these high-stakes industries, Jake's insights are sure to be a game-changer for all of our listeners. Welcome to another episode of Digital Doorways. Thanks for joining us on Digital Doorways, Jake. It's good to be here. Appreciate you having me. Excellent. Let's jump right into it. We've worked together for, I think it's almost 15 years now. It's been an amazing ride. And with a, a career that you've had that has spanned such amazing major brands from XO to Castle to Zero Fox, how do you adapt your marketing strategies to the specific challenges and goals of each of the companies you've worked for over this illustrious career? But it's a good question, Jason. I, I know you know a bunch of my background, right? And, and the fact that I am a, I have a very non-traditional path to CMO. So my, uh, my core education originally was in electrical engineering, and I grew up on the engineering and ops side of business before transitioning over to marketing once I was 15 years in industry after a short military career. So I tend to think a little bit differently about um, about how to uh, how to assess the challenges of an organization, and I'm very much a planner, right? So, um, so you know, I sort of follow the think before you act approach, uh, and then for me, it's always heavy assessment of business goals, uh, business unit goals, regionalized, et cetera, and then. And then marketing strategy, right? So um, it it takes me a while to get there because there's a heavy period of assessment up front, um, and then and then once you understand though sort of where your gaps are from a achievement of business goals perspective, then it allows you to more readily adapt your marketing strategy just based on the needs of whatever brand or company that that you've started with. So. That's, Sounds like a true engineer. Measure twice, it, cut, it, cut, cut once. That way, yeah. <laughs> and you know, in your career, you've had, uh, you've worked with or teamed with in the C-suite with some of the most iconic business people in American history, from Carl Icahn to Mark Ein. Can you share some key insights from your experience dealing with 
mergers and acquisitions and the challenges and how you've managed branding during some of these transitions? Yeah, sure. No problem. So I think, uh, I think there's two sets of problems, right? One is sort of your initial problems around uh, a brand being acquired and the need to integrate it into a cohesive sort of brand story, right? And and that's that's where people tend to focus the most. And my my approach there is is don't wait, move early, right? And then default to consolidation of brands wherever possible, right? So of course you're always assessing um, how much brand value there is out there in the marketplace to whatever, you know, new companies have been acquired um, so that you don't lose existing halo and, and that kind of thing. But, but in the end, it behooves you to consolidate as early as possible um, and, you know, and move quickly and be decisive, right? So the worst thing that could happen is a lack of decision-making around the approach to, um, to consolidating or, or aligning around a singular brand story that brings those multiple companies in a merger together. Um, so I, I think that's the first set of problems. And I think most people tend to focus there. And then there is a second set of problems, which is, Usually when you're acquiring, um, in many cases, you're acquiring companies with complementary solution sets. Um, And then, you know, and then you've got sort of a problem of, you know, your legacy brand potentially not being recognized or associated with a new set of products and solutions, right? So there is a long tail then of brand activity, storytelling, and awareness that needs to happen that is an ongoing process to make sure that your current brand um, starts to to get recognition, I guess, and be associated with these new services. We're doing it right now at Zero Fox. So there have been multiple acquisitions, including several over the last couple of years. And, you know, we have real, really uh, very real examples of, you know, a brand that is known today for um, core risk protection um, and domain and uh, brand protection. But, we have, uh, you know, breach and intelligence and dark web monitoring as additional services that we got by way of acquisition. And we're having to do purposeful work to uh, to create the awareness associated with the Zero Fox brand to these other sort of product pillars that are out there through acquisition now. And as we've known each other I've noticed you continuously join businesses that are in highly competitive industries, extremely noisy. Yeah. Cybersecurity, there's a million and one. And back in the day with the XO, telecommunications, just, you know, everyone was a telecom company and you jump right in and you you go for it. And what's the, what's the approach? How do you leverage branding and marketing to drive change and growth in these highly competitive industries where... It's so hard to tell one uh, one brand from another and and find a competitive differentiator. Yeah, I bet I think I think you got to work really hard to find that differentiator and and to look for sustainable differentiation. So 
you know, made the last company that it came from, Castle uh, Systems, which was, you know, in the physical security space, but, you know, in a larger category of real estate technology, also very crowded, noisy ecosystem. And, uh, and you know, uh, not in a brand that had um, some super positive qualities, but not wide scale recognition across the U.S. And so, you know, you pick a point of differentiation. In the example of Castle, it was the fact that we were cloud-based and had access to data and that the physical security system became a avenue for richer, more helpful data to make decisions around your business, right? And so, you know, it is finding that sustainable differentiation and then doubling down on it from a marketing perspective. Um, and, and you know, it's hard. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do, but every company has it or they're not going to be a viable company for very long. And to be a viable company for a long time in the businesses that or the industries you continuously choose, trust is a critical attribute of the brand to trust the security around the enterprise or trust the telecommunications uh, infrastructure to make sure that business is operating. Uh, how do you balance the need for growth, which I'm sure you're charged with when you join these businesses, but also maintaining brand integrity? especially in sectors with such uh, strong brand identities. Yeah, th this is a really hard challenge, actually. And, and you know, obviously varies a bit. I've, been, I've had the opportunity, I guess, to work at really big sort of brand houses like Verizon, um, where I didn't have full control over the... Um, the brand guidelines and then, you know, all the way down to, you know, smaller entities. And, you know, I'm currently um, Zero Fox, which is publicly traded, but more smaller cap publicly traded, you know, with full responsibility all the way through. And so, you know, um, you know, in the bigger shop, then, you know, you can see scenarios where the integrity of the brand takes priority and actually starts to impede the ability to create growth, right? And so it is a super delicate balance, you know, because I'm, you know, because of my engineering background, data orientation, I am almost always focused on return for marketing, right? I, I come at the business and the marketing strategy from that angle always. Um, and so, my challenge typically is how to not um, over-prioritize the growth side of the business and make sure that we are maintaining the brand integrity, right? So, and then part of it is just an accountability thing where I feel very responsible for delivering returns to the business in partnership with the sales teams, so. And that's got to have challenges with it as a publicly traded company where the public markets, it's growth, growth, growth. Um, you know, we've been talking at 50,000 feet. A lot of my listeners are always asking me to get down to five feet. Let's talk about an exact uh, situation. So, um, give us an example of a particularly challenging marketing project or a campaign endeavor that you've led and how you successfully navigated it. Um, uh, I would say one that comes to mind and yeah, you are familiar with this, I'm sure, right? Which 
you know, was, uh, and I'm not sure I successfully navigated it all the way through, but um, was a need to do a rebrand while I was at Castle, right? And, and in the end there, you know, which many times is true for a CMO, the biggest challenge is internal selling um, and navigating sort of internal stakeholders in a way that you can continue to make progress. So in this example, we had a brand that was uh, 11 to 12 years old. It needed to be refreshed, a lot of brand value around it, but visually and uh, from a messaging perspective was in uh, fairly strong need of a refresh. Um, and yet there was quite a bit of internal um, uh resistance i guess to making that change including all the way up to mark and the you know chairman because you know he'd been around for a while and had a strong attachment to the brand and was you know wary i guess of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. and so you know it took me a long time to enroll folks all the way up through mark at castle to even make the decision to head down the path to a you know a brand revamp there so and it you know it was uh it it was complicated and detailed right but and and we ended up over focused in the beginning on what the value of that brand refresh would be things that to you and i seemed very obvious right but needed to be sold internally and so you know had to go through a bunch of hoops in terms of you know, building materials and, you know, giving examples, even without already um, uh, making a decision to go down the path of a brand refresh, just to get enrollment to, to be able to go do it. Yeah, definitely. It's always tricky when the founder has some personal connection to like a logo or a brand element and getting them off of that. I remember when we rebranded CyberArk, which is an iconic cybersecurity company. The founder, Udi, had um, created a logo for the company using Noah's Ark as a graphic, and it was just extremely uh, juvenile. But it (laughs) took months to convince him that to go public on NASDAQ, you do not want a Noah's Ark logo sitting there uh, when you ring the bell. And eventually, us and Goldman Sachs were able to get him off of that. Yeah, maybe you know, yeah. as we've worked together over the years, you know, I'm managing hundreds of clients and I've always been amazed that you're overseeing portfolios of customers of over 25,000 businesses at some of the brands you've overseen or 250,000 businesses with behemoths like Verizon. How do you maintain this balance between customer satisfaction and driving growth with these kinds of portfolios? Uh, I mean, I, the reality is you you have to have somebody that wakes up every single day thinking about the customer, customer journeys and the customer experience. And, you know, if you don't have folks dedicated to that task, it will fall on the priority scale, right? And, and I think, um, I mean, we're going through it now. I just hired in a head of customer marketing at... Uh, at zero Fox because it was not a high enough priority originally. And then to your point, you know, everybody's focused on growth, growth, growth. And, and 
So then customer experience goes by the wayside. So, you know, I think there is, you know, having a team set up that's dedicated, that is thinking and living and breathing it all the time. And then there is gaining full visibility to the corporate goals and targets, right, for growth and the impact of, you know, churn um, and unanticipated churn on that growth to, you know, help create the argument for the right level of resources to focus back, back on the customer. So one of the biggest challenges that I see my customers or almost fear that my clients come to me with is I have to uh, manage all the key stakeholders to define a new message and position. And often they look to outsource it because no one inside of the enterprise wants to take the bullet on what is the right message position at, at the core to take the business to the next, next level. I know you've been through a lot of messaging and positioning exercises. What strategies have you employed to create strong market positioning for the brands you've worked with? And how do you sh ensure that the message is going to resonate with the target audience? Because, yep. you know, you could love it, but will the target audience love it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, to me, the key here is just to start with the customer. So, and you, you know, you do have a lot of stakeholders internally and a lot of people with a vested interest and feel like they've got the uh, juice to weigh in, right? But if you start always from the customer's perspective, and I mean explicitly interviewing customers and hearing their voice, about, you know, why they bought your solution and why they're trusting your company and their brands um, to your company, um, then then it makes all of those internal discussions easier. So um, so when, you know, at a, sometime in the past year, I was introduced to uh, the jobs to be done approach. And I, I know quite a few people are sort of on board and follow it. Now, I had the luxury of being able to work directly with a guy named Bob Moesta, who's up, up in Gross Point, Michigan. So you remember the old movie Gross Point Blank from back from sure. the 90s with John Cusack. So he, his company's up there in Gross Point in the middle of nowhere, but he is one of the founders of Jobs to be Done uh, sort of approach. Um, and I learned directly from him the process to interview customers and how to hone in on the why they bought, what was going on in their environment and their world that led them to purchase you, right? And and I think when you start there, um, it makes everything so much more simple as you get to message development. One of the jobs to be done, I think a lot of CEOs are asking of their CMOs these days, is the famous two letters of AI and the other classic word of the MarTech stack. How do you see the role of technology evolving in how you run marketing and your marketing organization? And how have you harnessed a lot of these technology innovations in your strategies? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think the jury's still out a little bit on AI, right? I mean, I think everybody's sort of on board with what AI's role is going to be from a pure sort of content generation perspective and how it can help and speed things along. Um, but, but I don't think there's 
sort of a universal path now or an understanding of how AI can be used in other places in the business, like on the data analytics side from a marketing perspective, as an example. So it'll be interesting to see what evolves there. Um, And so for me, I, I think I always try and reserve, call it 10 to 20% of budget and uh, resource time for the organization um, to maintain focus on innovation, not just tech innovation, but sort of process innovation as well. And so as we think about the tech stack in particular and, you know, new technologies being employed to help with marketing, um, I think it's important to always be trying something new, right? So we reserve a healthy portion of our budget and of the team's time to ensure that we are trying some new technology or changing how we do things within the organization just to see how it works without an ex- expectation of re- return. So, um, and I, and I think for me, I think the technology from a MarTech stack perspective will continue to be important as it more and more is focused on, uh, the ability to highly target and create a return on investment, right? I mean, the the market has been turning from growth, growth, growth to bottom line performance. Um, and I think all CMOs are seeing the impact of that uh, market turn in the last year or two years here um, in terms of, you know, even more focus on return for marketing dollars spent. Great insight. And, you know, recently I was down in Orlando at the Francisco Partners uh, Summit where they bring together the CEOs and CMOs from over 100 of the most exciting technology companies. And Deloitte came in and they were giving this big presentation on uh, how to deploy AI inside of your marketing organization. And the, the excitement that when everyone came in the room, it was just huge. But then they started talking about how everyone has to build their own proprietary LLMs, these language learning models. And you could just slowly see the blood (laughs) draining out of their face as they're having to deal with this very complex technical matter. And it is not going to be as simple as chat GPT. Um, So it's just fascinating to watch as people were seeing the reality of if you want to use these technologies in a very uh, custom way so you don't it doesn't feel hyper generic which there's a lot of kind of vanilla-ness that a lot of people feel that if you use generative AI that's what your marketing will feel like so I find that um, I found that quite enlightening to see people's reaction and as I spin that looking at the dynamic world of cybersecurity how do you address the challenge of conveying these complex technical information to such a broad audience effectively? Um, I think our our approach is one, keep it simple, and two, it's a layered approach. So obviously the same level of messaging isn't appropriate for all audiences. And I think the tendency in many tech companies, especially high growth tech companies, especially with a diverse set of products, is to say too much and and overcomplicate um and you know we are 
guilty of that and we're getting better and better at that at uh at zero fox now but so the you know first piece is to keep it as simple and the only way that you're able to do that right is to layer on more depth as your desired audience progresses through the journey right you just you just can't expose it all to everyone right up front because it's overwhelming and you know many companies that are product led or innovation led have you know fall into that trap right and and as the marketing organization matures over time you sort of get crisper basically on that layered messaging and keeping it simple right from the get go you know one of the things i was always amazed about uh that that i watched you pull off and maybe you'll talk a little bit about this or a different experience you've had but you know, when COVID hit and Castle, which is all about solutions for the office, you built proprietary data around return to work, return to the office, which everyone was clamoring for accurate data as to our people returning. And that became just a PR goldmine for you. And I was seeing Castle and Castle executives quoted all over the place. Can you share some experiences where you've leveraged persuasive PR to drive brand recognition uh-huh. and build customer trust in the cybersecurity industry? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that example is a great one. Um, I, but I, I, you know, for me, I think it's about finding out what unique assets the company, whatever company that you're working at has internally that can be leveraged on the PR front. So in Castle, the example that you gave, which is a great one, um, is, you know, access to very unique data sets that nobody else had any ability to um, aggregate that data in interesting ways to provide insights to what was happening in the real world, i.e. COVID and, you know, the work from home sort of um revolution that covid caused um and so right now we're going through the same thing at zero fox i mean we're we are a content generating machine now a massive amount of the content at zero fox is generated out of our intelligence team and they're generating content on behalf of customers that are requesting it and but the insights built in this you know uh the intelligence briefs around what's happening and what they're finding on the dark web on behalf of brands that have, you know, that have engaged with us is incredible, right? And so the PR value of that intelligence is through the roof, but it it took the same thing here at Zero Fox as it did at Castle, which is marrying up, you know, internal teams were that unique value lies in this case the intelligence team castle with the bi team marrying it up with the pr machine essentially to strategize about how that data in one case intelligence in this new case can be used right and then executing on a plan together so on the, in the cyberspace today you know, we're getting much more coverage than we were two, three, four quarters ago. You know, part of that is we have a super strong uh, PR team and agency that we're engaged with. 
but a big chunk of it is alignment around this internal intelligence team who are producing content with the strategic objectives for PR in terms of what's resonating in the marketplace. So um, that's a good. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And, you know, when you're taking on these brands, you're often dealing with brands that sell into B2B, B2G, and inside of each of those, there's subsectors inside of it. Um, How do you ensure a unified brand identity when dealing with so many different sectors and companies under the same corporate umbrella? Yeah, and I think in this case, it's it's as simple as you, you need to write down the guidelines, right? And, you know, allow some flexibility in the guidelines, but they need to be written and they need to include very specific examples about how the brand is expressed um, via various channels or tactics or, you know, or, you know, pieces of content. So, you know, it's, it is, and it's interesting to see how often you step into a new role and, and it is not written down, has not been, socialized across the executive team and the various business units or or different companies um or sectors um and so therefore is just not understood so you know it's like do do you have a brand book does it address both the visual aspect of the brand and give specific guidelines there that unify even across multiple different companies or brands under one umbrella and then similarly on the messaging side how is it tied together what is the umbrella messaging and storyline that threads through all of these and what are the specific examples of of how that would you be used or how it would show up. So, and then once you've written it down and then, you know, rolled it out to each one of the entities, then it all becomes a lot easier because you have something to reference back to. It seems obvious, but I think people would be surprised at how often it, it is not there. It doesn't exist. I agree. I, we are constantly coming into enterprises and we ask for the brand book and they look at us cross-eyed so definitely understand it and another time that people often look at us cross-eyed um, is clients are always asking for dashboards and data and analytics etc but often they don't even know what questions to be asking to try to get out of the data as a final question what is your take on the role of data analytics in marketing and how have you used data-driven insights to improve your overall marketing strategies and tactics. Yeah, I think it's funny because we literally just came full circle. So we started off talking about my background, my engineering background, and how that drives a different approach, which is, you know, funny to land on this question as a final question because um, this is huge for me. Um, And even in my current role, I just had to elevate marketing ops and hire a leader and uh, create more focus on it um, because um, because it if you don't have visibility and insight into what is adding value to the business from a marketing perspective, you'll never go argue for the resources and the money to go do more. Um, and so it is for me, it's not even just about dashboards and seeing the data and visualizing the data. 
It is, do you have marketing analysts that can tell the story behind what the data is revealing? So, you know, so where is it performing? What is working and why is it working? So you can make active decisions about where to reinvest more dollars, right? If you, if you don't do that or have that, you're just shotgunning out there with your, you know, with your, your spend across multiple different tactics without knowing, you know, which ones are really going to produce for you. And that, that is a bad answer. Jake, thank you so much for joining us on Digital Doorways. Your insights and this 15 years of collaborating with you has been awesome. And I hope to have you on a future episode. Yeah, would love to do it anytime. Appreciate it, Jason. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, thank you.